The scripture reading for today is Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 31. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them so that the crowds wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. This is God's word. And we're super excited for uh, the trip that Ashley is getting to take this summer. Carissa and I uh, had the opportunity to lead a team of students similar to what Ashley's doing to Shizuoka, Japan, uh, now 10 years ago. And it was an incredible season, uh, incredible ministry, uh, how the Lord worked in our own hearts, how he worked in the students' hearts. Several of the students on that trip went back to Japan longer term. Just a really, really great opportunity. We actually celebrated our first anniversary in Japan. Um, but uh, I want to tell you this morning briefly the story of our first date. Uh, there are perhaps few things more painful and embarrassing in my memory than uh, the social faux pas I made on my first date with Carissa. Uh, we went out to dinner at a Japanese steakhouse, see a theme there, and uh, it's one of those teppanyaki places where, you know, they throw the knives and they turn onions into volcanoes and so on and so forth. And uh, so we sit down and, and Carissa orders the steak and the shrimp combo and I ordered the steak and the chicken. I'm thinking, great, I'm going to get to eat some shrimp too because there's no way she's going to finish that plate. And so uh, I was kind of excited about that and we get done with the meal and I look over and, and, and she ate it and the words that came out of my mouth next shall forever, I'll take to the grave with regret. <clears throat> I said, Wow, you're a good eater. <laughs> so, man, if you're looking for dating advice, just avoid anything that resembles that in any way. But you know I married a woman who operates by grace, because she actually married me after, after that. But, you know, it's always embarrassing and awkward to uh, to commit or even just to witness a social faux pas, somebody saying something in, embarrassing in, in public. You just kind of want to crawl into a hole and rewind that part of your life. But as we look at the, the story of Matthew, 
How much more awkward is it when the one who seems to be committing the faux pas is the one we call Savior and King? And that's the effect that this story before us in Matthew's gospel has on many people today. We read this story and and see what comes across as, as just plain insensitivity. Jesus ignores this woman's request and then adds to it what feels like a derogatory comment refers to her as a, as a dog or associates her with a dog. And, and there's two knee-jerk reactions we're tempted to make as we read that. The first is to get embarrassed or even outraged at Jesus' behavior and words. And the second is to downplay the awkwardness and dismiss any sort of sense of, of uh, offense so as to protect Jesus from coming off as too offensive. But neither of those reactions does this passage justice. The former lacks the patience necessary to really understand what's going on. And the latter lacks the sensitivity toward those who might identify with this woman and her her desperate position, her minority posture. And it also risks softening some of the hard edges of this passage that are perhaps meant to sting a little. And so... What do we make of Jesus in this story? How are we to understand better who he is as Israel's long-awaited king, as the true ruler of heaven and earth, in whom all the nations hope? That's one of the overarching messages of Matthew's gospel. How does this story contribute to that? It's a story that's full of surprises, uh, but perhaps the greatest one is that the main point of a story that at first feels you know, so awkward and offensive to, to non-Jews, that the main point of it is actually that there is healing for all nations through faith in Israel's king. There's healing for all nations through faith in Israel's king. So let's pray and look at the story. Lord, we, uh, we want to hear your voice this morning. And God, we recognize that you have a heart for all nations, that when you made a promise to Abraham, it wasn't just with the people of Israel in mind, it was to see that blessing go to all families of the earth. And and so we're excited as we think about Lebanon this morning, we're excited uh, for your vision for the nations, and yet we're confused when we look at this passage. And so I pray that your spirit would give us understanding, give us insight, And more than that, that your spirit would be at work in our hearts to see the world the way you see it, with compassion and with hope through you, Jesus. In your name, amen. At this point, we've been been going through Matthew's gospel for some time, and at this point in the story, uh, opposition to Jesus and his message has been escalating. So he's been doing a lot of teaching uh, proclaiming the coming kingdom of God, that it's that it has arrived, it's begun. He's been demonstrating the presence of that kingdom through signs, through healings and, and miracles and such. And, and people are beginning to oppose that increasingly. And so last week we saw how the Pharisees had tracked him down all the way from Jerusalem going to Galilee in that region in order to test him and his teaching. And so again, Jesus is now moving on from that region. Uh, and verse 21 tells us he's heading into Gentile or non-Jewish territory. Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. 
And when he gets to this Gentile, this non-Jewish territory, that's what the word Gentile means, non-Jewish. When he gets there, he sees the same darkness and brokenness that he's been observing in Israel. Uh, Even here, people are bringing to him their sick, their demon-possessed, those in need of healing and wholeness. It's one more reminder in this story that we live in a world that is broken and doesn't work the way that it's supposed to. Though many of us don't need that kind of reminder because we feel that daily in, the own, in our own challenges that we face. And, and so Jesus enters this area and verse 22 tells us, And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. So here is a woman, like so many of the women that we've met in this gospel, a woman in desperate need of help. She comes pleading for the healing of her demon-possessed daughter. Now, demon possession is not something we talk about a whole lot today, and it's, it's kind of hard to understand, but it is a very real danger, and it's a, there's a very real sense in which the powers of darkness and, and the minions of Satan are warring against people to deceive them and to destroy their lives. That's their agenda, to deceive and to destroy. And that's what's happening to this woman's daughter. And as she watches it happen, she feels desperate and helpless to do anything about it. And so she comes to Jesus. If any of you have ever been in a situation where you've watched your child helplessly, whether it's some sort of illness or ailment, and, and, and you want desperately to take their place or to do anything that will relieve them of the suffering and the pain, but you have no options, nothing, you know the sense of misery and desperation that this woman is experiencing, the anxiety, the fear, and so on. And so here we have a woman like so many women that we've met in this story. A woman that some of us can perhaps identify quite closely with. And yet there's also something different about her than some of the other ones that we've met. Matthew describes her as a Canaanite woman. A Canaanite. She's she's not Jewish. She's a Gentile. But but not only a Gentile, she's descended from the enemies of ancient Israel. If you think back to the book of Judges... The nation, the people group that was causing Israel to turn away from God and to turn toward idolatry that was oppressing them were the Canaanites. This woman is a descendant of that ancient foe. And Matthew's emphasizing that about her. Uh, He emphasizes that background. If you read Mark's version of this story, he simply calls her a, a Gentile, a Syrophoenician woman. So he identifies her with the region she's from. Matthew puts emphasis on her Canaanite background, that this woman comes from ancient Israel's enemies. She's not just a person that's outside Israel's covenant. She's actually opposed, or her people that she comes from were opposed to that covenant. They were enemies of it. And yet this woman, Canaanite that she is, recognizes that Jesus is Israel's king. Notice how she addresses him. Have mercy on me, Lord, which is another word for king, son of David. David, she recognized this king is Israel's king who sits on David's throne. 
That's incredible that a Gentile would understand that and appeal to Israel's king. And so our question is, how's Israel's king going to respond to her request? Verse 23, but he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and and begged him, saying, send her away, for she's crying out after us. What? (laughs) Come again? I mean, is this the same Jesus that we've been following through the story? You read that verse and you can kind of expect that level of insensitivity from the disciples. They don't always get it. You know, later in chapter 19, they're trying to keep the kids away from Jesus and so on. And Jesus has to rebuke them and say, no, let the little children come to me. But here, it, it, it seems like Jesus is equally dismissive of this woman's cry. And so you wonder, what in the world is going on? And, and no doubt the woman probably wondered the same thing. I mean, here is her chance for help, for healing for her daughter, some miracle to rescue her. And she runs into the red tape of Israel's covenant. The red tape of Israel's covenant. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, facing a deadly cancer diagnosis and catching wind that there is, there's a, there's a cure that's out there that might actually do something about this. And, and, and so there's new hope again, but it's been blocked by the FDA. Or, or your insurance company refuses to pay for it. Help seems within, you know, reach, but then it's blocked by some bureaucratic red tape. So here, her chance to see her daughter healed seems blocked by a technicality. She's a Gentile, not a Jew. As Tom Wright notes, we wouldn't think much of a doctor or a nurse who refused to treat a patient because they weren't from the right family background or they weren't the right color. Seems very strange. So what's going on? What's going on? Jesus says to the woman in verse 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And again, that that sounds a bit dismissive and narrow and even rude at at first. But the, the point here is that his mission at this point in the story focuses on the Jews on the descendants of Jacob. Jesus is clarifying the scope and focus of his mission. Right, uh, Tom Wright explains, Jesus wasn't simply a traveling doctor whose task was to heal every sick person he met. He had a very specific calling, which he already hinted at in chapter 10, verses 5 through 6. God's people Israel needed to know that their God was now at last fulfilling his promises. Not all red tape is a mere technicality. Sometimes it's there for a reason, maybe to protect somebody. Sometimes it's there to protect a purpose. And that's the case in Jesus' situation here. He was sent for a specific purpose. And, And though it seems harsh to our ears, Jesus does not owe it to anybody to heal them. He doesn't. If he did, why does he pass so many people up in these stories? Why do so many people remain in pain today? He's not obligated to heal anyone. Why after a successful night of casting out demons and healing all sorts of diseases in Mark chapter 1, 
when his disciples find him and say, everybody's looking for you, does Jesus reply, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Jesus' mission is bigger than healing everyone's diseases. It's bigger than that. And he doesn't actually owe it to anyone to heal them. This is one of the hard edges of this passage, that not everybody who asks God for healing receives it. That's hard. Some do, but that also means that some don't. And it comes off as offensive to to many of us. It seems uncaring, partly because some of us face very real and desperate needs that if God doesn't show up, we have no hope. And so that weight is hanging on us and and we feel abandoned if God doesn't answer. Partly because some of us have been raised with the assumption that God's whole job description is to make our lives happy and healthy. He's our personal therapist, our doctor, our cheerleader, our, our cosmic butler and concierge. And if we have a need, then Jesus owes it to us to meet that need. And we have no category for suffering. Or how that might actually fit into the bigger picture. And there is a bigger picture in this story. There's a bigger picture in the whole biblical story. A bigger plan at work. And it's bigger than my life. And there's a bigger plan because there's a deeper problem at stake. That's even deeper than my own problems. And in saying this, I don't want for a moment to minimize the very real pain and desperation that so many of us feel as we face different trials. But I want you to think of the horror of that situation and recognize there's something far worse than that. And there's something far better than that problem just going away. And that's what Jesus' mission is about. A bigger plan that addresses a deeper problem and if that bigger plan does not address that deeper problem then even our lesser problems will be will will be enabled to prevail over us that deeper problem is this our sin our rebellion against our creator and holy god we were made to know and love and enjoy and and follow God as his children. There is nothing better than that. To know the Father in heaven. To be satisfied in him. There's nothing that lasts longer than that satisfying joy and relationship. But there's nothing worse, therefore, than to be shut out from that relationship. To be shut out from his presence and his glory. And that's what sin does to us. It separates us from God. And it's our sin that has even corrupted the world. All of the things that that do not, that are not the way they're supposed to be in this world. The corruption, the, the, the physical ailment, all of that springs forth from that original sin in the garden when the creation was corrupted because of our rebellion. The very existence of disease and disability and death are the product of that original sin. And so the world does not work the way that it's supposed to. So, so unless that deeper problem is dealt with, none of these other problems can actually be dealt with either. 
Unless we can be reconciled and reunited with God, even our lesser problems won't be able to be overcome. We might get better today, but we might die tomorrow. And so if we don't deal with the deeper problem of death, then then we've really gained nothing in the end. And so there's a bigger plan. There's a plan that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit ordained together before the beginning of time that the Son would enter into this world to deal with that deeper problem. It's a plan that God accomplished through his promises to Abraham and his descendants. God made a promise to Abraham that all nations would be blessed through him and his descendants, God's covenant people Israel. It's a promise that would therefore eventually reach all nations through Israel's king. A king who would defeat the power of sin and death by giving his own life on the cross and then by taking it up again in the resurrection. A resurrection that all God's people look forward to in the end when that king returns. When the dwelling place of God, what was corrupted and went wrong in the beginning, when that will be made right once again and forever. The dwelling place of God will will again be with man. Revelation 21 tells us he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He, God himself, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. This is our ultimate hope for healing and wholeness before God. What he promises to do in the end. And any healing that Jesus does now in this story or even today in our lives is but a sign pointing forward to that ultimate hope. A foretaste, an appetizer of what we hope and trust God to do in the end when Christ returns. It's a restoration that all who trust in Christ will share in the end, both Jew and Gentile alike. And that is the mission Jesus came to do. That is the main thing he came to do. And and to do that, it meant first fulfilling God's promises to Israel. And so Jesus initially passes on the woman's request because he's focusing on the bigger work of healing. That is at stake, one that all nations would, in fact, eventually share in. And that's why the, the, the gospel, though, must go, as, as Paul puts it in Romans, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, because the benefit that the nations look forward to comes through God's faithfulness to Israel. And so that's the mission at hand. And if Jesus does not attend to that mission on Israel's behalf and fulfill their promises of God for his covenant people, there will be no blessing for the nations. And so he has to focus right now on his mission to the lost sheep of Israel. And so here's the first application for us. When we pray for healing or for deliverance from difficulties or problems in life, and we should pray for those things, but when we pray for them, we need to pray with a humility that recognizes there is a larger plan at work, the details of which we cannot always see. 
There is a larger plan at work that will work in the end. But the details right now, we can't always see in the moment. So, so pray for healing with a humility that recognizes there's a larger plan at work. That's the first application. But the story's not over. This woman is wonderfully persistent. And so verse 25. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. Just Simple words. But you can hear and even see the desperation in those simple words. Her posture of kneeling. She's at his feet. And all she can utter is, Lord, help me. That's all I got. Lord, help me. How could Jesus' heart not be moved to pity? And yet what follows is for some the most shocking line in the passage in verse 26. And he answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Really? Was that necessary at this moment? I mean, our kids get in trouble for saying things like that. One scholar calls this comment, quote, the worst kind of chauvinism, a violent rebuff that reveals incredible insolence. I mean, it does, that might be a bit strong, but it does seem a little out of character for Jesus for us, doesn't it? So what does he mean? Well, there are several suggestions for why Jesus might make this association with a Gentile woman and dogs. And again, some will try and soften the picture. You know, he's, he's just talking about a house pet. He's not talking about the mangy, ugly, scabby, scaly, you know, uh, sca- you know, mongrels that roam the streets scavenging and such. Not sure that actually helps soften the analogy at all. The simplest and I think most compelling explanation is that dogs, like Gentiles, made no distinction in their eating habits. And so they became an analogy for unclean. The, the Israelites had a code for what could, you could eat and what you couldn't eat. There were certain clean foods and certain unclean foods. The Gentiles did not make that distinction. And so the analogy, uh, they, dogs became a frequent analogy to refer to them. It's a picture of being outside the covenant, not keeping the covenant laws. Now, it's interesting, in the picture here, both the children and the dogs are under the master's care, but only one of them's part of the family. Only one of them's part of the family. And that's the point here. The priority of covenant membership in receiving God's blessings. The blessings go to the children first. They're in the family. And the unclean are outside the family. Jesus came for the lost sheep of Israel, for the children of the promise. And so the gospel and kingdom Come to them first, which is another hard edge to the passage. But again, if it doesn't happen, the blessing never comes to those outside the family. How, do, how are they going to come inside the family if God doesn't keep his promises to the family first? The children come first. Again, it's, it's an awkward statement. But as shocking as Jesus' words are to, to us, the woman's reply in verse 27, I think, is the most shocking for us. Of all, she said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Notice how the woman doesn't take offense as we do. 
Neither does she dispute Jesus' logic about the children coming first. In fact, she acknowledges it. She says, yes, Lord. The children take priority. The covenant must be fulfilled. She knows she's talking to Israel's king. And she comes humbly in submission to him. So here's a Canaanite who gets the plan of God better than most of the Israelites did. But isn't there mercy to spare, Lord? Aren't those outside the covenant happy just to enjoy any sort of scraps that fall from the table? That's all I want, just a crumb. All it will take is a crumb of your healing power to set my daughter free. And so like the centurion in chapter 8, Jesus recognizes in this woman a, quote, great faith. There are very few people that that's ascribed to, and most of them are Gentiles in Matthew's gospel. Verse 28. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus makes a a compassionate concession. He takes a promise that is yet for the future, the healing of all nations, and he brings it to bear in the present for this woman and her daughter. And so... What began as a, as a story that kind of felt awkward and, and, and seemingly narrow and exclusive has quite ironically now become a signal that the blessing of the Gentiles, that they can, the blessing that they can anticipate if they will trust in Jesus comes through Israel's king. There is healing and wholeness for all nations through faith in Israel's king. God does not heal everybody who asks, but he can and he does heal as it accords to his plan. And this woman shows the kind of faith that takes God's healing power series, even when the deck seems stacked against her, so to speak. And that's our second application this morning. Pray for healing with faith that God can and does heal. We pray with humility that we recognize there's a bigger plan that we can't always see. But we pray with faith, believing that God can and does heal. He has the ability to do it. This this God of ours made our bodies. He knows how to remake them to bring wholeness to what is broken. He's able to repair what darkness and disease have undone if we trust him. And so we pray Not with doubt. That's often our temptation. When we pray for healing, we're afraid God isn't going to do it. And so we kind of hedge our bets in the way we frame our prayer. God, would you do this if it's your will? In other words, here's a nice wide open door. You don't have to do it. You can walk out and we'll still think the same of you. But would you do this and so on? And and, and again, we want to pray with humility that recognizes God may not answer But that doesn't mean we don't come with absolute faith that he can and does answer and pray like we mean it. We're praying to the God of the universe. He knows how to do that and he loves to do that for his people. And so pray with faith that God can and does heal as it accords to his plan. We see this need for healing as the story continues 
Jesus moves on from Gentile territory and, and the story moves on. And so verse 29, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and he sat down there and great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet and he healed them. Just as the woman came with desperation over her daughter, here we see how widespread that desperation and need for healing was. The crowds upon crowds bring their afflicted loved ones to Jesus. And and we see the wide range of affliction and suffering that they were facing. The lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and then and many others, which is kind of a catch-all for all sorts of other diseases that he was healing as well. There's no burden or affliction outside the scope of Jesus' care and power to heal. And yet it's interesting that Matthew mentions these specific afflictions over and over again. Have you ever noticed that? Of all the different diseases that Jesus was no doubt healing, and if you you read stories of ancient miracle workers and so on, and they're healing bunions and bald hair and all these kinds of things, those don't make it into the Gospels. Why is it that that Jesus uh, and his healing is often the blind, the crippled, the mute, the lame. And those are the ones we see mentioned over and over again. We've seen it earlier in Matthew's gospel. We see it again in chapter 20 later on. Well, quite simply, it's because Matthew wants us to make the connection between the promises of Isaiah and the ministry of Jesus. Isaiah 35, verses 3 through 6. Promise of what God will do when he returns to rescue Israel from their exile. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And guess what happens when he shows up? Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And then in Isaiah 29, verse 18, in that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. And what's interesting about the promises in Isaiah is that they're about what God will do when he shows up. And here he is in the person of Jesus doing it. Bringing healing according to promise. Reversing the curse of the fall as a sign and a foretaste of the restoration to come. So Isaiah 29 continues, Therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, people of Israel, Jacob shall no more be ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale. For when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, when he sees what God does to rescue them, they will sanctify, they will make holy my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And that's exactly what happens uh, 
in Matthew as the people of Israel see the work of their God. Matthew 15, 31, Jesus healed them so that the crowd wondered. They stood in awe when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. They did exactly what Isaiah said they would do. And that's what the healing power of God is really about in the end. The glory of the God of Israel. The glory of our God. His renown, his honor, his worthy reputation. It's not just about being freed from our problems and being able to get back to life as normal. That's what we often think. That's what we often want when we're praying for God to do something about this situation. I just want to go back the way things were before we had this problem. But that's not the point. The point is to find our satisfaction and wholeness in Christ. Whatever the situation. And that satisfaction and wholeness in Christ is what's actually best for us and what brings the most glory to God at the same time. It's what we need most and it's what honors him most. There's something far worse than the problems that we face in this life. To be shut out from God's presence and glory forever because of sin. And there's something far better than being delivered from our problems. That is to know and love and enjoy God forever. To find our greatest treasure and satisfaction in Him. And that is something that no disease, no disability, and no power of darkness can ever take away from His people. That is a satisfaction and a joy that lasts forever. That is our ultimate hope. Wholeness and satisfaction in Christ to the glory of God. That is what Christ purchased on the cross when he bore our sins in his place and carried our diseases. It's what has broken into this world through his resurrection from the dead. And it's not just the hope of the Jews, even though Jesus had to fulfill those promises and that was the start of his work. It's the hope of all nations. In Revelation 22, the Apostle John has a vision seeing God's new creation, what God would do in the end when when all the wrongs will have been put right and God's people will dwell in his presence. And Revelation 22 verse 1 says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there's all sorts of imagery from the Old Testament that's kind of all colliding here in that vision. But this picture that the nations will find their healing from the throne of the Lamb. There is healing and wholeness for all nations through faith in Israel's king. And that healing is to God's glory. He's the one who gets the credit. And so that's our third application. When we pray for healing, to pray that God might be glorified among all nations. That's the goal. That we would see, that others would see his power and his worthiness in restoring what is broken in our lives. 
So we pray with humility that recognizes there is a bigger plan. We pray with faith that takes God serious in his ability to do that healing work. And we pray that God would be glorified in doing it. And as we close this morning, I want to do that together. I want to pray to have a special time of prayer for those who are hurting and in need. For those who are facing disease or sickness or for those who, whose hearts are burdened down by loved ones who are facing hurt or sickness or disease. We've been going through the Gospel of Matthew for over a year now. And this is now the third or fourth sermon where we've seen Jesus healing people. It feels a bit incomplete to me not to then take that seriously and pray for him to do that for us. And so that's what I want to do right now. And so that if, if you would like someone, and particularly I'd like the elders to come forward and, and to pray for. The elders are the shepherds of this flock. They help lead this congregation. We pray for you regularly anyway, but we'd like to pray with you this morning if you would like someone to do that, to pray for healing or hurt. Um, if, if you would like prayer but feel a little uncomfortable and awkward coming forward right now, that's okay too. You don't have to. Uh, we pray for you anytime, any place. You just say, okay? But we'd like to make that opportunity available. And again, the, the, there's no power in me or in them to heal. We just want to pray for God to do what God does and what God can do. We want to pray with humility that recognizes there's a bigger plan. We want to pray with faith that God can and does heal his people. And we want to pray that God would be glorified in doing it. And so... Um, for the next few minutes, we invite you to come forward. The elders can go ahead and come forward. And, and if you don't feel that, that, that's totally fine. But I encourage you to be praying where you are for those in need as well. That we would just, as a congregation, have a time of prayer right now. And then in a few minutes, Lawrence, uh, our student minister, is going to close that time in prayer. So uh, this, is, this is a chance for you if you would like to come forward and, and have us pray for you. I want to look to... Um, the Seek God for the City um, booklet. Um, it's something we want to use as a community um, to draw us closer to God and as we pray to Him to draw us closer as a community searching and seeking after Him. And today's reading uh, it has two passages. The first is from the Psalms. It says, He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even as Jacob. And then in John, but an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Let's continue praying. God, you are a great and mighty God. And we come to you knowing that you are the source of all good things of truth, of joy, of healing. And so is our foundation as the building block of our faith. You've done great works in our lives. And we pray that you would continue to be faithful to us and we can trust in that faithfulness. And so we pray that we would be like um, the woman who approached Jesus 
trusting and having full faith that you are capable and you are able and you are willing to do wonderful things in our lives. As the psalmist said, O Lord my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. And as a congregation, we lift up uh, those who came forward, those who were suffering, those uh, who had loved ones suffering, and we pray that you would do a mighty act of healing in their lives. And we pray for the long-term requests uh, for Mary Boy, for Ruth Hepp, for Bob French, and Bob Norcross. God, do wonderful things in them. We pray for Cheryl Boy, uh, her cancer, and now the coma. Uh, We pray for healing, uh, not just of body, but of soul. Uh, We pray that they would uh, be trusting in you, that they would find the hope in you that we have. Uh, We give you praise for the successful surgery this week for David Bates. Lord, you are great and mighty, and we thank you. We pray for uh, the effectiveness of Suki Cobb's foot surgery, for full healing, for full recovery, uh, that she can be uh, with us again. Um, We also pray for the work that you're doing here and overseas, for the work in the Americas, for the work in um, the Caribbean, and also for the work that you're doing in India with P.V. Joseph and his family. Thankful, or we thank you for your faithfulness to them and pray that their ministry there would be good and effective. And Lord, we pray to you to give you the glory that you rightfully deserve as the Lord and the Master of all things, um, the Lord of our lives. And we pray that in every aspect of our lives, in every moment of our day, that you, Lord, would be given the glory that you rightfully deserve. We pray this in your good and in your precious name, Lord. In the name of Christ, the healer. Amen.